0: Hello there and welcome to another episode of Ruben's Podcast, a show where I speak to people about their lives over the last decade and the lessons they've learned along the way. On today's show, I'm speaking with Sonakshi. I met Sonakshi back in 2011 at university where she studied English. In today's conversation, we talk about a bunch of different things. From starting her career editing for a defense magazine to eventually working in public policy and even a podcast she also tells me about her work she and her mom's been doing to help victims of domestic violence and we chat a little about her experiences with that she tells me about her shifts in beliefs and we also discuss the future of this very podcast if you're new here welcome to the show and I hope you enjoy today's conversation if you'd like to keep up you can follow us on Instagram we are at Rubens podcast and if you'd like to support the show, you can buy us a coffee, link in the show notes, or just leave a review when you're done. This is episode 40, and we upload new episodes every Saturday. Okay, with that, let's get into today's conversation. Yeah, I think we are live. Awesome. So, Nakshi, thank you so much for doing this. How are you today?
1: I'm good Ruben it's good to be speaking to you and you know having caught up with you after I don't know how long
0: I think in person like two and a half years but yeah I think unlike most guests we should bump each other bump into each other pretty often in when you were in Gurgaon at least I was yeah
1: yeah that's true <laughs> I was there quite a bit um and it was always good to sort of dropped by the Jade Palace as well.
0: Dropped by the Jade Palace. By the way, I, I I don't think we've ever, I've ever talked about the Jade Palace on this, on the podcast. But yeah, for people, I don't know if i mentioned it, but if you haven't already Googled the Jade Palace, uh, the Jade Palace is where I used to live. So was a frequent visitor. Uh, one of, I would say the, what was the term? But a, a frequent visitor to the Jade Palace. Uh, but you can actually yes, find definitely. the Jade Palace on, on Google. Uh, you can just Google. Yes, it, and it's got,
1: like five star reviews google it guys
0: yeah it's got five star reviews So actually i think helped us get a lot of those reviews <laughs> but uh, but yeah you were a frequent visit at the jade palace uh, but you're you're currently still living in delhi yeah
1: yep i'm still here um oh. i got back from doing my masters in 2017 so been here since got it got it
0: and we were just chatting before the conversation uh that like most people in delhi um you also got covid
1: Yes, I did um, during the heat of the second wave. So
0: um, that's good. Things are things are okay.
1: Yes, terrifying uh, phase. Hopefully, all behind us.
0: Yeah. So, So, like most people, Sonakshi kindly sent me a voice note. But unlike most people, Sonakshi's voice note could have just been this podcast. (laughs) <laughs> I usually ask people to send me a voice note, and some people will send me like a two-minute voice note. Some people will send me a five. So actually sent me a thirty-minute vo- <laughs> voice note. So, at some point, maybe I might just upload that instead of doing all of this. But um, um, it was it was very very detailed. But thank you so much for, for doing that. Uh, you took a lot of effort to to send me that. But in a nutshell, um, and there were so many things that we can talk about. But uh, in a nutshell, uh, you did you studied English in college. And right after graduating, I don't know if a lot of people know this. Uh, I remember you told me this and I was you know shocked. Uh, and then when I listened to it again, I was shocked again. You went in to do some kind of editing for military journals. You were writing about India's air defense programs. <laughs> so anyway, you, you, you did that. And we will talk about how, like, what the hell like does one edit while you're being a, like an aerospace defense <laughs> editor? Um, but a few years after doing that, you're working with your mom, um, on a bunch of stuff to do with, um, helping sort of victims of violence with with legal aid and advice. You do that. And and I I think we can talk about that. I think that was quite interesting. Um, you then decided to go get a master's, uh, on scholarship. Um, and you spent a year about, about a year in Brighton. Uh, and we can talk a little bit about that one. You came back, you've been working in policy and I'm very curious to know about your stint or or your time spent at the woman in labor podcast i think you're like one of the few people who aren't involved in the podcasting world i think lipsa was another one who hosts a podcast but i think you're like the second only person i know who works or who worked at at a podcast so we can talk about that so clearly Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things i don't know what we will touch upon (laughs) but maybe like rewinding why don't we start out with what does one who used to be editing children's books and studying english in college go on to write or edit about military journals. How how did you even get in there?
1: Uh, So I was referred to the job by a a family friend who put me in touch with this gentleman who runs uh, or who ran um, this 40 year old defense and aerospace magazine. So it was one of India's oldest defense and aerospace review magazines, uh, as it were, he was uh, an aviation enthusiast. So that was very much his area of work. I also actually at the time edited a book about in uh, Pakistan's military. So um, a particular, I did some writing about, uh, you know, it was called (laughs) Fizai. So that was an interesting one, the name of the book. Um, And it was sort of republished in that year that I was there. I, you know, covered Aero India, which was super fun. Uh, It's in Bangalore. It's held once every two years. So, yeah, I got to meet and interact with a lot of interesting officers, (laughs) um, go to a lot of press releases and, you know, just all manner of things that I hadn't really thought about because um, at that time, I was thinking about what I want to do and where I want to study and, you know, all of that. I I thought really hard about what it was that I really wanted to do after, uh, because up until then, I'd only ever thought of literature. but you know, editing was something that I happened to be uh, good at, and I just thought that you know I could, um, in that year, try and take some time to think about the sorts of programs I was applying to, and you know, really think about why I wanted to do certain things, and that sort of spilled over even into the next year where uh, I did a little bit more of that while interning at a bunch of different places and. Still trying to figure out exactly what it was that I was most passionate about. And I really think that that time helped uh, put it all into perspective. But this was one of those things that just sort of fell into my lap. It was, you just do it was it. wonderful.
0: Yeah. on that I'm curious. You, you also were, right even in college, you were editing like children's books. Um, and yes. now you were editing military stuff. Which one is harder? Like, Is it harder to edit children's books? Or was it harder oh, to for edit sure. the military stuff? <laughs>
1: No, no, not the military stuff. I mean, that, that stuff's pretty straightforward. You have a style guide, you know, you know, what needs to go in and you learn to pick up on on the nuances of that with children's books. I used to have to really think hard about what it was that would appeal to a child and like where authors were using words that were too big and what age groups it was targeted at and all of those things. So I did like, I think 80 books in the period between 2012 and 2016. Um, I did a lot of freelance editing. So yeah. Got it.
0: And what kind of books were you editing? At least the children's stuff. Were they like story books? Were they activity books?
1: Yeah, story books, activity books. Um, I did a few like, you know, those little moral stories and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the ones that come with a little disclaimer dis- on it, like, you know, the child needs to to remember that this is the moral lesson you're taking away from the story. Oh, wow. But, Yeah, I did a lot of folk tales, um, a lot of stories from around the world, because there's an international book publisher. So they used to display books at various international book fairs. So I had to even think about things like what sort of audience would want. So what would, you know, German kids like or what would Dutch kids like versus what Indian kids cause the markets are so different. Um, so what was your frame of context also was something that I had to think about, which was fun and really got to apply that part of me. So. that's so
0: interesting. So you said that you really, really liked editing and clearly you've done two very, very different kinds of editing. I'm curious to know, like, how would you describe a job of an editor? So if somebody's like, say like you studied English, um, or even if they didn't study English, how would I know or what, what what goes into the job of being an editor or editing stuff like this?
1: so it's interesting that you ask that because if that's not the only two kinds of editing I still freelance edited even after I came back from my master's for a bit and um I did work for a think tank um and I was editing about the future of work and mobility and uh, the BIMSTEC region and you know just a bunch of different things. But I think the job of an editor may not actually be to necessarily be an expert in the things that they're editing about, right? Uh, you don't always need to have a full area of expertise, though it does help to have a general curiosity about them uh, and to make the effort to to learn um, where the author is coming from. I think a lot of times editors sit in try to edit the language and that's one part of it um but all of my work has come on referrals and i'd like to believe that part of it is also because i'm trying to think about what it is my author really intended to say and that was something the literature really taught me right like um the first question there's multiple schools of thought of course even uh, in literature like in all other things but one of the things is that what what did the author mean and what did the author intend or that the author is dead and you're supposed to start from a blank slate, right? And that's the two most basic kind of ways of looking at it. But I like to think about the context in which an author is writing or the way in which they're thinking about something. So I used to say things like, you know, I'm willing to do the back and forth twice over. I still charge you the exact same amount, yeah. but I'd rather make sure that what you intended to say has come out in even in the edits that I have put in that, you know, if I'm trying to edit your language, I'm not taking away from the meaning of what you're saying or what your original thought behind it was, because I also like to write. (laughs) So I wouldn't want that done to my words. I wouldn't do it to someone else's. Um, And I've had a chance to edit a book for uh, an independent author. And that was super fun also, because these were, uh, it was a merchant, maybe, um, gentlemen so it was great because i got to sort of it was six stories about the seafair, the seafaring soul and it was it was wonderful because uh, and this was something he said to me at the end of it that it was a really enjoyable experience because at no point did he feel like his voice was being lost in the changes that i was making um, so
0: how, how does this work so say the seafaring guy right what does he do does he sit with you and just talks or does he like write some random stuff on like a word document and emails it to you and then you like slice and dice it into like chapters and like themes and paragraphs like is that how it works
1: so in that in that particular case it was a bunch of short stories was six short stories that he'd written Hmm. Um, and you know those came to me and they were in the form of short stories so my job was very much just editing and making sure that it was uh you know for the eventual reader so from that perspective what is it that a reader takes away from it Uh, so whether it's language edits whether it's um you know just seeing how the story is progressing that's kind of how we were going but we used to leave comments for each other and i'd say you know was this what you actually meant to say um and i remember a particular incident where we'd spoken about i think it was a penang curry which he'd mentioned and I think he mentioned it in the context of Indonesia. And I said, well, isn't Penang like a more Malaysian thing? Um, and, you know, that particular kind of curry. And he said, you know, you'd be surprised, but like it's traveled as well. So you'll mm-hmm. find a, a version of Penang curry even in Indonesia. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and it was things that I hadn't even thought about. So you learn something from each of these things that you do, right? And yeah. that's very much yeah. been my experience with the editing that I have got to learn so much. And now I I know lots of random things about from the defense and aerospace stuff, you know, about um, the light aircraft, uh, combat carrier, you know, just uh, things that, and granted, like my, my knowledge is rusty. So it's been, you know, whatever, eight, 10 years since I did it. Um, So I'm not up to date with the terminology and I may not know very much about it, but I can have an interesting conversation from time to time. And that's really, you know, uh, the good thing about it. You come away from it feeling like you've learned something. and you know.
0: I, I'm curious to know what, what's been like the hardest part is being an editor. Like I'm sure it's not easy to, to do what you do, right? To like to like preserve their voice at the same time. You know, like if I had to write a book today, oh my God, my editor would have a, like nightmare just solving my like grammatical errors. But I'm curious to know what what you find like as a hardest job what, about this entire thing of editing.
1: Uh I think for me, the hardest part has been fighting for the authorial voice because very often you're, as a freelancer, at least for me, I would be answering to, you know, whatever editor in whichever organization who'd say, well, it's okay, just cut it out if it's not sounding right. And I'm very methodical and quite a perfectionist in the worst possible way because I would say, no, that let me speak to the author. I will take one day extra on it, but I will make sure that, you know, that that is kept preserved, and digging your heels in with that is not always the best sort of way to uh, to handle these situations. But yeah. in some instances, you know, you you stand up for the things that you believe in, and that's okay too. So yeah, that's definitely been the hardest part of this.
0: Yeah. So I I, I want to know if I read some piece of work today which has come out from like a publishing house. On average, what percentage of it is like the actual author's voice versus how much of it has been edited? Like is more than 50% the author's voice or is that not the case?
1: You know, I honestly couldn't tell you because a lot of what I've done is academic, um, mm. and not so much for like the big publishers. So I wouldn't oh, know no. anything about those, uh, more no general, like fiction or anything. I've never edited a lot of that. Do, do you have a guess? At... Sorry.
0: Do, do you have a guess on how, like how uh-huh. edited is, is work that people like us read?
1: Oh God, uh, I'd say like at least about 40 to 50%, but I feel like a conversation with Shohini would be a like an interesting one for you because mm. she works at a publishing house. Oh, um, maybe
0: I should add, so, add, yeah. add to the list.
1: Yes, I think so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so, so you said that you spent a few years trying to figure out uh, what you wanted to do next. Um, and I think it's part of these years, um, you had mentioned in your voice that you and your mom started doing some pretty interesting work uh, with uh, victims of domestic violence. Um, so for context, you had mentioned to me that you you and your mom had a history of this, and hence it was a, a, a cause which is very important to you. Uh, and even mm-hmm. during the pandemic, um, you started this thing, I, I forget the name, but you started an organization wherein women and children of uh, who sort of were below a certain income income group uh, could come to you guys for legal advice if they were sort of suffering from domestic violence. Uh, I think that's super yes. awesome. Sorry, why why don't you tell me what the organization is called? And maybe you you would describe it better than I just did.
1: Yeah. So the first thing is that neither my mom or I are lawyers, so we don't provide the legal advice ourselves. Um, But um, so when I was nine years old, my mom walked out of a violent marriage. So I think one of the things that we spoke about around the time that we started this was that there's a certain kind of privilege and social capital, regardless of how sort of financially secure or insecure she was at the time there is there was a certain kind of social capital that she had to be able to speak about it the way that she did um, and to do it as openly as she did, um, even though there wasn't that much familiar support or, you know, all of those things. Um, and there was a lot of conversation about why you would wash your dirty laundry in public because this is not the sort of things that we speak about
0: yeah and um, this was like probably many many years ago if you were nine this is almost like like 10 15 years ago right
1: yeah yeah more it is a different era
0: <laughs> yeah yeah so naksh i'm trying to hide your age yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it was over a decade ago <laughs> so, yeah. so this, it was a different time
1: very gentlemanly i love it <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was it was definitely a different time. And, you know, I think I remember at first when she started talking about it, I like might have been around, I think, 16, 17 years old, maybe. I was very uncomfortable with the whole thing because much like the first reaction that everybody else had to it, even my first instinct was, well, what do you do like with all of that sorrow? How do you even begin to try to sort of make sense of it, how do you talk about it a certain way, actually not even 16, 17, maybe a little bit younger. Um, My mom sat me down and and the one thing she said to me was that, you know, if my story, if me telling my story um, can change even one person's life enough that they believe that they can do something about it and that they don't have to put up with violence, I will tell my story a thousand times over Um, and, you know, you are just going to have to learn to live with that. Uh, I think it was one of the more amazing things that's ever been said to me because it really forced me to take a step back and think about my privilege where we've been able to leave. For so many people, they just carry on because they don't even know that there are options under the law. They don't know that these are avenues that they can sort of take. So many people are so financially insecure that they're not able to make those decisions or that independence is not there or they just feel that it's an okay thing to happen. Um, there's so many different ways to look at this, um, and you'd be surprised, but actually the, the number of women who are willing to do something about it comes from lower income groups, uh, at least the ones that are coming into the trust, that's something we've noticed is that it's most often people with nothing to lose that you know find it easiest to, to talk about this um, or to do, get up and do something about it. and. I think what we wanted over that was that because people don't know that these are options because they don't always consider these options, even if they want to do something about it. Um, you know, it it is costly. It is a process to go through. Um, very often, you don't know where to even go. So we started this organization when I was in the second year of college, um, and it's called the Woman of the Elements Trust. Um, so you know, you can check out the website. Um, but basically the idea is that we provide free legal aid to anyone who comes in so they can speak to our lawyers and, you know, just find out what their options are, regardless of what your income capacity is. But for cases that need to happen end to end, we work with, um, women and children below, you know, the income capacity of 5,000 a month. And the idea is, you know, end to end, then we can do those cases. So we've had, you know, a number of, uh, resolutions done like this, uh, cases fought end-to-end for women to make sure that they get their rights, their entitlements, um, that they can file under the Protection of Women from Domestic Violence Act uh, of 2005. So basically, just that. Um, and during the pandemic, we also partnered with the Like-minded organization to start an info line. So we started getting calls from, god, Every state, every state, union union territory you can imagine. And the thing is that, you know, um, we can help women in Delhi when it comes to the cases, but we don't have offices in each of these places. So very often you end up redirecting them to their local legal services authority uh, that's supposed to do this for free. Um, You know, we are able to give them advice on the options that they can immediately exercise, um, what they can possibly consider that, the idea is very much to tell women that they have choices, um, and to give them that space to exercise that that choice and that voice.
0: Just just to get a sense of, of like the the magnitude of this. But ever since you were say in second year of college when you all started this, roughly how many sort of women have you all spoken to? Or how many cases have you guys done to get a sense of how big this problem is? So
1: cases. Perhaps less because, as you probably know, the the backlog tends to, you know, uh, take a while, and the end to end process, even though it's supposed to be completed within six months, uh, very often in practice that's not the case, um, just because courts are massively backlogged. Um, but God, I don't know, several thousand women, uh, at the very least, and I'm being conservative in an estimate, but like just in the last year alone we've had uh let's say over 400 calls um and we're not even sort of on a, a national helpline right can you imagine the sorts of numbers i know that the national commission for women uh reported a spike in the last two years and it's been massive um there was a lot of attention paid to it during the first wave of COVID because that's when the problem actually began but the the sort of um numbers that we are seeing even after like lockdowns have presumably opened up have been just as bad if not you know uh, a little bit worse
0: but what does one do like what would advice? so so hypothetical scenario and i've thought about this sometimes say you know somebody is a victim of domestic violence and abuse at best you know naive me would go and tell them you can walk out you can do this but like i'm sure that they they, they are in a completely different situation right so, like, when somebody comes to you with this problem, like, what do you tell them? Like, what options do they have?
1: I don't personally tell anyone anything. <laughs> me, me personally. I mean, I'm not qualified as a lawyer or, or a doctor. or uh, And I think sometimes we forget, like, actually what you said, that people come from different circumstances. So, while on the outside, it's very easy for me to say, you know what, get up and leave. <laughs> you shouldn't put up with a- I'm not the one that has to take responsibility for that person's children and bringing them up. And I'm not the one that would have to take responsibility for a life that they have to rebuild. Yeah. Um, the truth is that so many people in this country, and particularly women are not financially independent, very often, um, they may not have jobs, we've seen the sort of job losses that have happened during COVID. Um, it's not been limited by gender by any means. But, you know, There has been data to support the fact that women have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic, um, and they've not recovered jobs at the same rate that men have, um, you know, across the world, really not even limited to India. So in that situation, for us to say that, you know, this is the definitive way to do this that may not necessarily be the most helpful what we can do is tell you look these are the options that are available to you these are the things you should consider looking at whether it's this shelter home whether it's um you know this particular kind of skilling you should look at if this is already something and that's something we're hoping to do more and more of um it's not just the the legal capacity of this but also to see what are the other options that women can exercise so they're at that point where they're able to do. Uh, what they need to do. Um, I've, I've said this on a on a different forum once, but I, I think it, it counts here as well, is that for most women, this is like even articulating that violence has occurred is such a hard thing. Just to be able to have that voice, to be able to say that, look, this has happened. Uh, and again, this is not limited by gender. This happens to people of all genders. But... Um, because I work with women, I can specifically speak to that, which is that, you know, just to be able to articulate that this the violence has occurred or for so many people, they just want to talk. Um, so do we have the sorts of medical legal aid available? Do we have, you know, systems that listen to women? Do we have um, shelter homes that are set up? All of these things, I think those are things to think about is that have we got the systems in place to address this issue and the magnitude of it. Right now, I don't believe that we do. Um, But I hope that, you know, that will change um, and the systems will be a little bit better placed. So to answer your question in a very short way, I believe that the best that we can possibly do is to lay out all of the options so that that choice that has for so long been denied to so many people Um, they realize that they are empowered and that's their choice to make uh, and not for someone else to decide, you know, what becomes of them.
0: Yeah. I I still, I think, and probably you may have been at a similar sort of position when the day you guys were starting it, wherein you're like, Oh, it's so black and white, right? Violence is bad. Like it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be happening. But I think the, I think, yeah, I think over time you have realized that it's much more of a nuanced thing in the solution than not.
1: violence is bad it should not happen bad there's no black and white I mean there's no grey and bad like you know violence is bad should not happen but then after that like what do you do how do you you know build back
0: you ended up writing a book with your mom was it about this was it your journey through all of this or was it totally
1: Uh, no it was a humorous account of our lives Um, my mom did a three part series which was about these issues Mm -hmm. Uh, and this was like a follow-up to that which was you know stories that are quite terrible actually they show me in a very poor light i'm scared of like rats and certain stories about like how the rat loved me and i didn't love it (laughs) Um, but i think one of the things that she did want to emphasize um after she wrote those three books was also that you know there is joy to be found uh, in life And um, for my family that, you know, we've had the immense privilege of being able to now laugh about like everything and, you know, find joy everywhere. Um, Just so that, like, like I said earlier, you know, so that for people to know that that's an option, that that can also happen uh, and it's not all doom and gloom and, you know sadness and it doesn't have to be the rest of your life
0: like now that i think whatever almost 10 years later to when your mom probably first sat you down and said that you're probably going to hear this story a thousand times is, is still part of you being like oh i'd rather not have that story out or have, have you like completely are you comfortable or not comfortable or, or, or do you like so from being uncomfortable to being comfortable to now maybe like being another additional voice for that like where are you on that scale right now
1: Oh, for sure, like another voice on that, because, uh, so I know you spoke to Vanchika, um, so I'm also a global shaper um, oh. with yeah the New Delhi Hub. So I run a project that does this um, domestic violence awareness in mm-hmm. colleges, and the idea is to get people to talk about this a little bit more openly. So I'm definitely like converted in that sense. Um, yeah.
0: Um, yeah those years must have been pretty hard for you um, when all of this was happening uh, and I know for a fact that like a lot of stuff happen to what happens to us when we and we are younger and are kids um leaves sort of like deep impacts to us um on who we end up becoming as people how we behave I've noticed this at myself a lot of my like quirks um is not like horrible stuff, but like something's happened when when I was a kid, and you know that's why I continue to behave the way i do um but um Anyway, let, we, we can talk about that or some other thing. <laughs> I don't know. Are there things like do, do, when when you sort of think about yourself, are there certain things you're like, you know, I can trace this back or this behavior of mine um, to maybe you back know, to when I was a kid. Yeah, back um, to when you were like nine when all of this was unfolding, and you've sort of had to like accept it, let go of it to sort of change that that behavior or the way you see the world.
1: So I don't think it's hugely impacted the way that I see the world because my mother's a very like positive person, uh, and, you know, and it's not a toxic sort of Pollyanna positivity, but it's very much a, you know, um, that just because this happened to me doesn't mean that this defines the rest of our lives. So my mom's are very clear that I remember to, you know, um, not let this color my view of love or marriage or, or any of those things. Um, and very consciously it's something that's been dimmed into our heads, both my brother and I, that it just one bad experience that someone's had does not mean that there's something inherently wrong with uh this institution. There might be other things wrong with it. But that, you know, that this is not why you should not be sort of attempting to live your life. And the one really good thing I got out of it, actually, if I'm thinking about the the flip side is the one work is actually my reading habit. I spent a lot of time reading books because that was my escape from a lot of everything else that was going on. Um, so it gave me a great vocabulary. <laughs> and I'm not sorry that you know I spend most of my life living in books. It's profoundly shaped everything that's come after it, whether it was my career, whether it's my you know, faculty with the language, any of that. Um it's always been because all of these things happened so it's not for me to to regret um and I don't think even my mother sort of holds anything against anyone or you know it's amazing to just watch her and she does this with so much like everything that she does with so much love and joy and positivity that I like who am I to sit and be sad about it and like maybe we can edit this bit out but Some part of me wonders about, you know, all of those things is that how do you, like when I watch her deal with life, I just think about my own place in this and that, yeah, it was terrible and yeah, but it's not like scarred me in the way that you would imagine. Um, And that's been the, I really think it's a, a large part of it is the way that my mother handled everything and the way she sort of was conscious of the way she was raising my brother and I, my brother's about to hopefully uh, embark on his PhD in gender studies. Now he just completed a master's in gender studies. So literally everyone in our family is doing this. Uh, And it's amazing. um, Just, you know, getting a chance to give back.
0: Yeah. That's so wonderful. And I must say that I think among the people I know, I would surely classify you as one of the more positive people. I just know, like you were always a good, like you were a good energy to be around. So, (laughs) So, yeah, I, I totally sort of agree with that. Anyway, enough of that. You spent a few years doing that. Um, when you were editing, you were working with your, with your mom on all of this stuff. Uh, but then you finally figured out what you wanted to do. <laughs> you ended up at Brighton at the University of Sussex, if I'm not wrong. That but is I, correct. I got the I got I got the right part of the thirty minute voice note, <laughs> and, <laughs> and and you were there on full scholarship for almost a year. Um, you mentioned to me that that year was amazing. Apart from the academics, apart from getting to live next to a national park and a river, uh, you I'm sure like most of us um, sort of changed a lot in that in that one year. Um, I'm curious to know how Sanakshi was different before she landed up in Brighton and how she was different versus. Is it so, that, see my English is so bad. How was Anakshi very different from the day she landed versus the day she left Brighton?
1: Um, I actually came away from that year being a lot less sure of myself. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. It's a very humbling experience when you go off to study. Um, so you mentioned full scholarship. Uh, that's correct. I got a full scholarship from the British Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office um, in 2016. And what's unique about this scholarship is that it, uh, awards it to say anywhere between 1300 to 1700 scholars from across the world. <clears throat> so there were 77 different scholars at Sussex alone, and most of them were from all over the world. Um, I was also one of the youngest people in the world to get the scholarship that year. I was 22 when I interviewed for it. So and despite all of
0: that, you leave less sure of yourself. <laughs> so I I was, this is crazy. But anyway.
1: Um, yeah, but what I was trying to say about being younger was that I met people that were, you know, in the prime of their careers, people that were, you know, had worked a lot more than I had, seen more of the world than I had in, in many ways. Um, it's a really humbling experience because you come away from it having learned something from each person that you've interacted with. And I think that's where the growth came in, is you know, just realizing how many differences there are in the world but also the sameness of it um and that strange sort of dichotomy and the way that the world functions is something that you know living in a different place and studying among different people will give you um so from that perspective like i felt like i became away a lot richer um for having done it um you know is, having is that, made all of
0: these if i can interrupt you is there a story which Sort of like describes this entire thing you mentioned about how there are so many differences but yet things are the same is there like an experience or like something which comes to mind
1: you know it's funny but there's uh the idea of the chappal <laughs> now, i didn't know this but a friend of mine was talking about uh, i think he called it la chancla he's like in in mexico like you know um if you get if you behave badly and like parent would pick up a chappal and just beat you with it yeah And then I had a friend from the Philippines who got up and said, Oh my God, you know (laughs) what? I know what that's like too. And just apparently the idea for rubber chappal is something that kids across like, you know, developing countries just all relate to. (laughs) And some of my Indian friends are saying the exact same things like, you know, oh, and I mean, I suppose my experience didn't really sort of resonate with any of that because, you know, given my family's experience, we weren't exactly going to be (laughs) picking up (laughs) chappal. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm that's inappropriate. <laughs> but, but that was really interesting to just watch that unfold in front of me mm-hmm. um and seeing all of these you know and this was happening at international food night where everyone had brought like food from different places yeah. um this exact same foods right but cooked so incredibly differently um it's amazing it's just all of those things that you realize that there is sameness in the difference, and that there are so many differences, but that's something to be celebrated. Um, yeah. And you carry that wherever you go. So yeah.
0: So so you spent about a year there, and I usually ask a lot of people who eventually decide to come back to India, why did you decide to come back? Why not just? I'm sure you would have pursued a fantastic career, you know, globally. But I'm curious to know what why you decided to move back.
1: This evening has a stipulation that you come home to your home country for two years. Um, and you contribute to the growth and development of your country. And it's actually great because I realized um, recently while going through some of my evening answers, well, when I last saw them, I think I've lost them since. Mm. Uh, but when I last saw them, I realized that everything that I had said I would do, um, you know, whether it was working in policy uh, around gender-based violence, whether it was um, being able to work briefly in academia, those were all things I'd said I would do in my application. Yeah. Um, and I got a chance to do a lot of that, um, having come back mm-hmm. and worked in, in the exact same space because I went and got a master's in gender violence and conflict. Got it. So that was my area of work as well. And of course, then my area of study. And then I came back and pivoted like later. <laughs> but Yeah.
0: But, but where you are right now, I'm sure that the two-year stuff is over. Do you see yourself continuing to work in India or do you see yourself sort of spending some time abroad?
1: Um, I, I think I, I don't know any city like Delhi. And I love it entirely too much to, to have a sort of full-time live anywhere else. But that's where I'm at mentally right now. I don't know if that will change.
0: As soon as you came back, um, you started doing some really interesting stuff with the government. Um, you worked at ORF for a bit, um, and you mentioned in your voice you note, know, which I'm very curious to know about how when you started working with, as a consultant with the government, with I think the ministry, um, you sort of saw the reality between, you saw the, the, the difference between reality and theory. Uh, I spoke to a bunch of people who work with the government, and uh, I think this, this is something which people commonly say, wherein, you know, as an outsider, you're like, oh, the government sucks and this policy sucks. And then you somehow get a chance to be there. And then you see the machinery operating firsthand. And then you realize how naive you've been. Um, can you describe to me this entire thing? Because I'm super fascinated. I, I would put myself as the naive pessimist sitting outside and be like, "Oh, well, this sucks, that sucks. Uh, but I'm very like, like yeah, I love to know sort of what your experience was uh, working at the government or, or working very closely with them and how reality is actually very different from, from theory.
1: So, um, I was embedded directly in the Ministry of Women and Child Development. I worked on a scheme called the Swadhargarh Scheme. It's for women in distress. So, it's shelter homes that are run for women in distress, um, women impacted by natural disasters, women um, that are seeking transitional shelter because of domestic violence, um, abandonment, you know, a whole number of things. But basically, the idea is institutional support to women in distress. Um, so yeah, I my job was mainly the implementation and the monitoring of the scheme. So it's a centrally sponsored scheme, which means that the s- central government puts in some part of the funding in most of the states. Uh, it's the sharing pattern changes depending on the state that you're in. And if it's a union territory, then the center provides 100% of the funding. That's usually how it works. But of course, this can vary from scheme to scheme. In this particular one, that was this was the case. And um, after the, the center sponsors X amount, the state matches that and it implements it and releases it to the shelter homes that are actually running the scheme on ground. Um, so my job was basically coordinating with the state governments and sort of um, at the same time, the scheme's guidelines were undergoing change, so I helped them revise the guidelines of the scheme. I don't think they've been passed since. Um, I don't know at what stage in the government process that's at. But uh, from my end, that was something that I sort of helped um, do a couple of consultations on. So you know, we had stakeholders from various state governments and you know, various um, other organizations come in, and just talk about the sorts of changes that would be needed to, s- to see this through on ground and see the maximum impact on ground, um, and for it to reach as many people as possible. I think since the government has announced that they're going to integrate a number of different kinds of homes and create Shakti suburbs. so I think that's also a process that is underway, which is why this, this the new guidelines may have been shelved, um, because if they're going to integrate them, they're going to have to think of it on a much larger scale um, but yeah, at the time we were looking at making sure that the implementation was happening on ground. And it was great because I got to speak to government officials from every part of the country. It was, it was a scheme that was run, uh, that is run in 28 different states and union territories. So you, know, you realize very quickly that the problems that are being seen in certain states, um, particularly ones with lower human development indicators are very, very different from the ones that are in states that have, you know, relatively better uh, performances on the same scales. Um, you start to see, you know, the challenges that they face, um, something as small as in hilly regions, if you have to build a shelter home, you know, the, it's going to cost more. There's a reason though the funding pattern is the way that it is, it's because, you know the materials have to to reach a certain area and for it to reach there it, the the cost is obviously going to go up because it takes yeah. that much more to to get it there and these were small things that like i remember when when speaking about child homes and oh we should have lots more of these these were not things i thought about is who is even running these homes who are the ngos that are involved what is the process for making sure that you know they're running the way that they should that the monitoring is happening that Somebody is able to go and visit these homes, um, you know, and it's government officials that do the the checking as it were. So if they're also running seven, eight different schemes, how are they supposed to find the time to go and and do this one scheme and then go and see five homes of another kind and then go see all unstop centers? Like to put all of this on any official, right? Those are things that you don't think about is that there are people that are involved in the government machinery in a big way. Um, and that are part of every every step of this process. Um, and it's very easy to say that, look, this is not working or that's not working. But when you see all of this happen, you see the kind of um, just what people are operating under, um, you know, the circumstances that becomes that much more real to you that, you know, maybe you don't know as much as you thought you did. <laughs> um, and maybe, you know, you, you should take a step back and think about. How these things actually happen, how they work on ground. Um, even recently, as part of some work, I was speaking to some state government officials about a particular scheme. And, you know, we were talking about the small things that are needed uh, to even have an operational sort of crash for children, right? Like, you need to have toys, you need to have space for them to, to sit, like, those are different things. But when you speak to different stakeholders, you realize that a lot more goes into a policy design than you think. Um, and you're like, why can't the government just do these things? Well, why can't anyone? <laughs> like, yeah, and I know that it, that's very much the mandate of the government, and I get all of that, and I get the, the righteous indignation as well. But I do think we need to temper it with a certain amount of uh, reality um, when we are making you know, overall comments about the way things work.
0: Yeah. So you, you you spend a lot of time doing this kind of work in policy. You no longer work with the government, uh, and now you 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 don't 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 do that anymore. So I have two questions for you. Number one is um, for somebody who's absolutely new to the space. Um, I think you mentioned to me also, public policy seems to be getting like is is a hot topic these days, right? And rightly so. I think there's so much to be done. Um, and I think from your experience, you spent some time in the government, you spent some time in non-government organizations. Um, how do you think about this for, for people just like curious about public policy? How do you do it? Do you, do you have to go become a government official or can you, you know, work externally? Can you work at a new organization? What would you have to save for somebody who's already worked almost half a decade in this, this industry?
1: Oh, I think there's a thousand different ways to do it and i don't think there's one path to it you start to realize that many kinds of organizations can make impact right hmm. we use the word impact really loosely oh, impact.
0: <laughs> everybody's having impact yeah from meteorites to people walking on the street everybody has a lot of impact these days
1: yeah exactly right and you you tell yourself that you know we keep talking about impact and the truth is that Impact can be made by tiny organizations that are affecting two people's lives, as well as organizations that are you know, funding hundreds and millions of people across the country. And it can be made at a government level. It can be made when you start even complying with the basic policy uh, imperatives that you have to. For instance, you have your sexual harassment laws in place. You have the sort of machinery for it in place. You're already part of the policy process at every single turn. Um, you know, whether you're doing your CSR compliances in uh, an organization, every part of this is part of the policy process. And I think the question really is for anyone who's exploring whether you want to be in the research aspect of this, whether you're looking at implementation directly on ground, um, you know, whether you want to look at research and communication, which is very much, uh, sorry, or just communications. Uh, I do a lot of communications work where they're looking at policy advocacy because that's a whole other sort of branch. So there's multiple ways in which you can approach this and there isn't one single right or wrong way. I think it's about finding what resonates with you the most. Um, mm-hmm. What part of this process you know, really excites you? Yeah. Is it going out to meet people on ground yeah. or not?
0: Yeah. How did, how did you go through the process of figuring out that I think you're right now in like research and communication, right? Or maybe more of communication. How, like can you walk me through how you went through this thought process on out of this entire sea of opportunities, why does Sonakshi want to be in communication as a part of this entire policy space?
1: So I think I've chanced upon it more than anything else. Mm. Um, I found an organization whose values resonated very strongly with mine. And I remember even when having um, my first interview or even the final interview, uh, you know, and everything in the process in between, I realized that the way in which they were thinking about policy was exactly how I was thinking about it is that you can work with multiple kinds of organizations. You can create policy impact through, um, you know, all of the things that you can do in this process, um, and do them systematically. And, um, Communication happens to be my strength, so that's the kind of work I prefer to do most of all. Uh, and this is something all of my colleagues know as well. Yeah. So, from that perspective, it was very much you know a strength that I decided that I wanted to play on a little bit. But that being said, I do you know the research side stuff. I do um, you know, and I actually also really enjoy the advocacy part of it, which is you know the consensus building and. You know, meeting different kinds of people and having those stakeholder consultations. And that's a part of the process that I really, really enjoy because I'm a people person. <laughs> and I think that that uh, is something that really helped me decide. Um, you know, like you said, I worked as a think tank briefly, uh, I worked with government, I got a chance to do all of these things. Um, and when you meet so many different types of people, I think one of the things that I took away was. Um, just the idea that I had to see what was going to happen next in this space for me. Uh, You watch a space evolve, you watch it grow, you see the sorts of conversations that are being had, and then you see where it is that you would be the most useful, or you would be able to plug in uh, your strengths the most. And that was the way in which I thought about it, is that these are the things I'm good at this is a place that is doing it and doing it in the same way that I would want to has similar values, um, similar goals is, you know, a great place to work. So this is why I would, and at that time I was making the shift back out of, you know, freelancing, which was when I did the podcast. And I said, you know, what better time to do this? Um, As I'm watching the field explode, as i am you know, I've had a chance to work in it you know, through research, I've had a chance to work on it through implementation. Um, this is where I want to be and this is what I'm good at. So, yeah.
0: you You mentioned the hot word, which is the podcast. Podcast, so, yeah. So you, you spent almost a year, was it a year, wherein you were working? It was
1: about eight or nine months, yeah.
0: Got it. So you spent about eight or nine months working with this podcast called Women in Labor. I love the name. It's so smart. <laughs> but it's about it's a podcast about uh, these two women, one's a filmmaker and one's a comedian, who explore this topic of falling employment, formal, falling women participation in India in the employ in the workforce. Uh, yeah. India is declining
1: female labor force participation rate.
0: India is declining labor force. Uh, see, <laughs> but basically there are less and less women working working in India, and I think is a is the worst in the world. Um, yeah, I don't know what to say. Like, let's not talk about more bad stuff. But uh, (laughs) let let, let, let us talk about what your experience of working at a podcast. Uh, This is like a proper production. What did you learn about um, just like, like producing a podcast?
1: So uh, I was research and editorial lead for the podcast. Hmm. Um, So I was researching the the topic. but i learned so much from everybody else who was working on it because a lot of them had extensive same marketing experience or um you know extensive Advertising experience, so those were some of the things that other people brought to the table, and of course, Christina was an investigative journalist, as you mentioned. So she really understood the deep dive aspect of it. Uh, Aditi, you know, was able to translate it for a much wider audience than we would have uh, otherwise been able to reach. I think the idea was very much that look, this is a serious topic, right? It's any way you slice it, it's terrible, it's awful, it hap- it's happening. Um, But how do you get people to care about this thing that doesn't, isn't even making it to the news apart from like an an op-ed once in a while that somebody writes about and someone just, I mean, you notice in the last couple of years, maybe, yes, there has been a lot more said about this this topic. Uh, And I'd like to believe that we played a small part in that by, you know, plugging into that conversation uh, when it needed to happen. Um, But I do think that, it has gotten the voice that it has because there's so many great organizations that are working on it, and were always working on it, right? Um, but now that it's the pandemic has shown us what this can actually mean. Uh, that's the really sort of terrifying thing. But yeah, just dialing it back and thinking about what I learned from this entire experience is that yes, the research is important, and yes, you know, editorially we need to make sure that we are factually we've covered every single ground that we need to. Um, But equally, um, you need to be able to translate it for a wider audience, because what's the point of having these data points? What's the point of the shocking news if people don't even know that this is something that's happening, right? Um, And that was something I really came away from and learned from this entire process is that it's about bringing um, these issues to light in a way that people are able to understand it. So I actually wrote a five part uh, op-ed series about the subject and I really had to reel in my inner node and you know, not make it sound like something that people wouldn't be able to understand. So I actually did a small, at the beginning of each of the op-eds, I wrote a small excerpt that would, there was more like creative writing than anything else, but it was to really drive home the fact that this problem is so pervasive and this is, you know. Like, these are natural, normal experiences that we've all been through. So, um, yeah, it was about reaching exactly the people that would care about it and getting people to care more a little bit about something that they may not have cared about before. And we did. We had, like, in the first six months, we had, I think, 200,000 unique listens. Um, wow. And the number only just sort of grew from that. So, yeah, That's crazy. it's been cool.
0: Yeah, you should absolutely check out the trailer. If nothing else, it'll give you enough reason for you to listen to the podcast. It's called Women in Labor and labor is the British labor, L-A-B-O-U-R. It's not L-A-B-O-R. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I think you can, I, I, I heard it on Spotify, but I think it's available on all podcast players. And you guys started releasing this early this year, March 2020. Women's Day or something.
1: Yes, International Women's Day on in March 20th, Right, that's correct.
0: Got it. That's so cool. I I never knew like people I knew were actually working on at podcasts. Um <laughs> it's it's like the new sort of newsroom. But Yeah, that was part of my
1: like freelance situation. I was doing yeah. a bunch of freelance projects uh, all together. So Nice. Yeah.
0: Okay, I know we're up on the hour and I, I'm I'm going through my list of things and there are so many more but I think we're going to cap it. Uh, when you look back, Sanakshi, um, I'm curious to know, you've been through so many different experiences. They've all somehow overlapped and converged, in my opinion. But um, I'm curious to know what a shift in belief has been for you, uh, which means something which you would believe very strongly, say, you know, when you were 19, but now you don't believe that anymore. Um, and why has that change happened?
1: Oh, wow. That's a really deep question, Ruben. Um one thing that I believed when I was younger was that I was alone in all of my problems, that all of these experiences that I was having were unique to me. Uh, I've alluded to this at some point in the conversation as well, but something I've really come to terms with over the last few years is that when you talk to people, when you you know, just interact with enough people, you start to see that your problems don't exist in silos. Um, there's people you speak to that you wouldn't even know. Um, you know. And I've had friends reach out to me over the last few years when they knew um, who my mother was, because as it turned out, they'd seen her on TV. <laughs> um, and reach out to me and say, you know what, this is happening um, in our families too. And people I never would have expected. Um, if it was, you know, speaking to a government official that was working on ground in, you know, one part of the country, just being able to speak to, you know, in, speak to one of them in, in a language, because I speak a couple of different languages. Um, but just that, that recognition and, and hearing about people's experiences in the language in which they're thinking it, uh, those are small things, but you realize that there's so much to gain from that that's a belief that, you know, when you're younger, you're a little bit more naive and you tell yourself that, you know, you're the bee's knees. I've said this a lot. You you come away from college twenty-one, you think you understand everything. And I've met a lot of friends since who have not grown since they were that age. But the ones I have sort of, you know, really felt like some sort of camaraderie with um, over the years are the ones that I believe have grown in the same direction and it's that that i really sort of feel very strongly about is that you you start to see that all of the things that you thought you knew it's okay for them to be challenged it's okay to to admit that you were wrong on a lot of things i know i was i did not when I was younger, I did not think I would, was a feminist, <laughs> like, you know, um, I, I didn't like the word very much. And then you read and you learn and you, you realize that, you know, you were a little shit. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, those, those, I mean, that's a really small example. But like, I think the whole process of this is, is challenging yourself. Um, and that's really something that I'm starting to do more in terms of challenging my beliefs than my body's ability to do things. (laughs) I'm still not. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the Diwagna had a rock climbing thing recently and I was like, I've, you know, I had got the shot that weekend, but in any case, even before when I was going to go, I was like, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to (laughs) to set my body to these limits. (laughs) But you know, mentally like, and emotionally, I do believe that challenging uh, oneself and one's beliefs has been the thing that I've come away from. Like, yeah. with this, the most probably.
0: that's a great one. Are there two pieces of advice you would have for 19 year old Sanakshi?
1: Um, I think one would be to take a step back, um, and to just think a little bit before, like jumping to a conclusion, Um, sometimes when you're as much of a nerd as I am, you tend to believe that you already understood the problem without actually taking some time and really thinking about it. That's something that the years have taught me. So 19-year-olds, Max, you would have really benefited from that. And the second one, peach chin up and it's not so bad, right? Like, uh, you... When you're younger, I do think you feel like the world is ending every time, and oh my god, what am I gonna do in this situation? Learn to really take it easy and uh, do what my mother says. says, who cares? Nobody cares, it's fine, we can just let you go on. Yeah, so those are the two things I think would be more strongly sort of advocated to young Sanakshi.
0: Take a step back and think and chin up. I think that's totally, yes. th- th- those are great pieces of advice. Okay, after all the quizzing I've done, Sanakshi. What question do you have for
1: me? What question do I have for you? So I want to know what you're going to be doing with the podcast. I realize that this is an existential question that you've been asking yourself as well, but I would love to know, you know, what you think, um, is going to happen after episode 50, cause I know that that's going to be a big one.
0: I, th- you're right. This is like the biggest question mark in my mind right now on what happens to the podcast. Um, I was hoping that I could get your help given that you've produced a proper show, but uh, I actually don't know. Um, I, so one thing that I've, I've realized about at least, you know, creating content and, and doing this kind of thing is consistency is more important than everything else. Um, you know, you can't really co- like, um, control quality. It, 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 you can get better at it, but yeah, like you, you should not be obsessing too much about, about those things, but consistency is like a superpower, right? Now, while I've not done a fantastic job in that... Um, I, I, I so that has been my only goal for the podcast till now, wherein just stay consistent and try to get better and better and better um, as a, as a host and sort of just like organizing this. Um, and I think that I, I've, I've sort of I feel I've, I've improved a lot or grown a lot from my first conversation with Chuck uh, to where we are today. And there've been ups and downs, um, but uh, I think that that's been happening. But at no point during these these years or these these weeks and months have I actually thought about. No, what's the point of doing all of this, right? Like, why am I even doing all of this? Apart from the fact that I was a very good excuse to reach out to anybody, literally, who went to college with us, and be like, hey, let's let's just chat, right? Without any kind of like, you know, uh, embarrassment or fear or anything. Like, That's been like a, a big, big perk of, of being able to do this podcast. Uh, and I don't think I want to give that up anytime soon. Um, but apart from that, um, yeah, I, I don't know, to be honest, um, there's one part which Wherein and I just continue doing these so many, like each of us have such interesting stories. Um, and I think everybody else has so much to learn from everybody else. Um, the fact that somebody could have heard the story about you and maybe they're either going through something similar or they have similar questions in their mind. Um, they now know that, hey, like I can probably reach out to Sanakshi for, 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 for any of that. But, um, but yeah, to be honest, I don't know. I started this podcast as, as a goal of just reconnecting with a lot of people uh, during the pandemic. And I thought it'd be just cool to, to upload and put this up. And I think it has sort of grown into something, but yeah, I find it very hard to isolate why people listen to this. Um, Do they care about these people? Do they want to listen about what they've been up to? Some people who don't even know you will listen to this podcast and they might find it interesting. I've had people say that. Uh, So yeah, I, I, I still don't know why people listen to this and as a result, I don't know where this podcast should go. So that, that's my, that's my existential dilemma. Um, I will continue. Maybe even once I hit fifty, uh, I might sort of continue. But um, yeah, I think till now the motivation was just get to fifty. That was like a like a goal for me, um, and you know consistency was the was the way to get to that goal. But once I cross fifty, I, I don't know what the next goal uh, for this podcast is. Yeah, I
1: mean, I I think with women in labor for us it was very much a twenty episode like series right it was commissioned for 20 episodes it was limited series that came out the way that it did um so the end goal was of course to have as many people plugged into this conversation as possible but what i'm finding most interesting about listening to your podcast and i've listened to a bunch of episodes because of course i'm interested in podcasts more generally um And you mentioned, you know, longer episodes or shorter episodes. That's something. So I listen to a 15-minute podcast, and sometimes I listen to three-hour Amit Varma episodes. Also, Um, but I think the one thread that's unique and common in all podcasts, right, is that at the end of the day, you're curating a story, and you're telling it. Um, You know, whether it's an experience that someone's talking about, whether it's research that they've done on a thing, whether it's a true crime podcast, because sometimes I listen to those as well. Um, but I, I do think that it's all very much a function of storytelling and the fact that the world is is changing the way it's looking at stories and we are changing the way we're consuming stories as well. Um, I mean, earlier it was books and I'm the last person to say this, I don't believe books will ever die out. But I do think that the way in which we're consuming whether it's like long-form articles or reading you know shorter pieces or opinions and stuff content is changing um and that was something i started realizing i I didn't mention this earlier but i have done some content writing as well Um, and i've done it for a bunch of different clients so that's something that I, i found is that through all of it it's very much about building a narrative and now people are open to different kinds of narratives. So you're getting to plug into that conversation, the larger sort of, you know, this thing that's happening. So I think that's wonderful regardless.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I thoroughly enjoyed the process and I I totally agree. I feel like Ruben's podcast in a newsletter would be pretty boring. Uh, I think if you just (laughs) lack lack the personalities of all the voices on it, but, um, but yeah, I think I I need to do some soul searching on, on why, like where, where this goes, because I do feel like, I think, at least for me, I feel some like the spark of, of the first 20 episodes sort of has sort of simmered down quite a bit. Um, I, 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 I like, I've of course, enjoy these conversations, but um, yeah, like I, 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 I need to sort of figure out why I'm doing all of this. Apart from, you know, pleasing the fans, there's so many fans who tune in every week to listen to this show. Uh, but but no, that, that, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'll probably figure it out. Um, and I've asked this a bunch of times to people, but if you guys have an idea or even like a reason why you listen to the show, uh, just DM me. A lot of that um, feedback and input will at least give me a good sense on where the podcast is and where it should, where it should go. Anyway, that's a good place to wrap up. So, Nakshi, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I hope you didn't mind me quizzing you on so many things, but you've done such fantastic things over the last decade, uh, and it's just been such a good learning experience for me. So, so thank you for doing this.
1: No, and thank you for calling me. It was great speaking to you. And I hope we'll get to chat much more about podcasting in general. because I hope so I'm more generally interested in this. Awesome. And of cool. course, the future of Ruben's podcast. The future,
0: if, it, if, it's still, if it's still around. Oh, hey. Please, 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 please donate if you want to keep the podcast alive. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> awesome. We'll, we'll wrap up with that. one, And that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the podcast. If you've been enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review. You can review us on Apple Podcasts or any of your podcast players. If on Spotify, just go follow us. If you've enjoyed this ad-free experience, it's because we don't have any sponsors. But if you'd like to support the show, you can now buy us a coffee. You can find the link in the show notes below. I upload new episodes every Saturday, not Friday, and I'll see you in the next one.